Good morning. Our text for the morning is Psalm 136. Another psalm. I'm doing a lot of those lately, uh, mainly because they lend themselves to jumping around quite a bit. <clears throat> hop in, hop in for a sermon or two. This one's unique. Um, we've started singing a shortened version of it recently. It's it's the one psalm where every single line has a refrain or chorus or whatever you want to call it. To him who blank, something God does or is, and then for his steadfast love endures forever. This refrain, the for his steadfast love endures forever, happens 26 times in the psalm. I mean, you've probably noticed it when we sing it, uh, but that's actually only 16 times we shortened it, left out 10 of them. The closest any other psalm gets is Psalm 118 with only eight repetitions. So how do we think of something like that, repetition? I think generally we have a healthy aversion to it, kind of the mindless, empty repetition. After all, this is the only psalm that does it. Well, usually repetition is either on one hand a mark of sort of a magical way of thinking or a superstitious thing that shows up in really kind of formal environments as if an incantation alone can force God's hand or make you a better person or whatever. And then on the other hand, you have the informal kind of church environment thing that where it's mostly used as sort of a psychological tool to get yourself in it, if you will, create a certain atmosphere. And neither of those things is what we want to do with repetition. But here we have, in Psalm 136, a holy, inerrant, inspired example of a lot of repetition with, with a rich, rich biblical history of use, both in the Bible and in the church. David used it, and Solomon, and Ezra. So what makes this different from the sort of ritualistic chants of false religions or the kind of psycho-emotional uh, thing that's going on in modern praise music. Well, in this psalm, each and every repetition is concretely rooted in another fresh truth. There's always something to chew on. The repetition always comes after new content. It's like when you're, you're eating, you take a bite, and then you make that, that whatever grateful groaning noise when you're happy about what you're eating and you take another bite and you do it again because it's that good and you take another bite and do it again. Yeah, it's obnoxious and it's hard to watch if you're not eating the food too. Uh, but if it's in sincere gratitude and it's in real response to new joys, it's appropriate obnoxiousness, if you will. David's wife, for example, thought he was a fool for worshiping like this when they brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. You might think that a husband is being silly if he's, you know, groaning and moaning after every bite at supper, you know, complimenting his wife and that kind of a thing. But that's because maybe you're not the one filled with that same gratitude at the time. It may look silly, but when it's a real response to real goodness, it is appropriate. So the temptation, we're going to read it, and we are going to sing it in future weeks. The temptation when we come to something like this is to either be lazy and callous and let the old truths become dull to us 
And therefore, we're sort of just faking it or going through the motions or just boringly repeating. And just, uh, steadfast love endures forever. And steadfast love endures forever. Or we might be thinking too much of ourselves or of other people when you're actually filled with that eagerness and grateful confession that the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. When we sing or say that together, it, it should not be an empty repetition. It should be responding to each line. So therefore, part of our task today is to see in those lines in between the refrains in a fresh light um, so that you, along with all the saints of old, all the way back into the Old Testament, can truly repeat 26 times, if you will, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. So let's pray and ask for God's help, and then we'll read. Heavenly Father, we praise you and adore you. Well, your love does endure forever, and let that never be empty on our lips. Well, give us light today as we study your scripture, that our minds and our understanding would be able to grasp hold of what you have said through your prophet, and that our spirits would be illuminated too, that we would be able to take in and digest and believe and love and apply the things that we read this morning. And we pray for sustenance of my own voice as we continue. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Psalm 136. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights, for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day, for his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and the stars to rule over the night, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, for his steadfast love endures forever. And brought Israel out from among them, for his steadfast love endures forever. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea in two, for his steadfast love endures forever. And made Israel pass through the midst of it, for his steadfast love endures forever. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, for his steadfast love endures forever. 
To him who led his people through the wilderness, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down great kings, for his steadfast love endured forever. And killed mighty kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. Sion, king of the Amorites, for his steadfast love endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, for his steadfast love endures forever. And gave their land as a heritage For his steadfast love endures forever, a heritage to Israel, his servant. For his steadfast love endures forever. It is he who remembered us in our low estate. For his steadfast love endures forever. And rescued us from our foes. For his steadfast love endures forever. He who gives food to all flesh For his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven. For his steadfast love endures forever. The holy and inerrant word of the Lord. (coughs) Four points today. The first two are shorter. Point one, we're looking at verses one to three and, and verse 26. There's sort of a, a pyramid shape to this psalm. It ends how it begins, so we're just gonna take those parts together. Point one, give thanks to him. I think it's easy to miss the main point of this psalm because you're repeating the, his love endures forever so much. The main point, the whole thing, is one big command to give thanks to him. There's really only one verb governing almost everything from verse three all the way to the end of the psalm. It's give thanks to the Lord of lords who did this and did this and did this and this and this, this. For 20 plus verses, give thanks because something for his steadfast love endures forever. That's the form. Every single thing in this psalm is an example of God's steadfast love. But also everything in this psalm is another reason to give thanks. Another great wonder for us to confess out loud to one another. So, give thanks. Sometimes the text makes the preacher's job easy. Give thanks to him. There's no reason to wait until you feel better. (laughs) The psalm lists 26 unchanging reasons for you to give thanks. And that's just a good start. I mean, it's 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 to kind of seed your imagination. I'm sure you could bump that list up to 100 if you took 20 minutes. Give thanks. Still not feeling it? (laughs) Well, consider this. It's just objectively true. He... He deserves thanks. We should be thankful. Are you aware that the being whose title is God of gods, Lord of lords, God of heaven, has set his perfect, loyal, kind, merciful love on you? That he's been acting in your favor since before you were born? Even if you're not saved here today, you're not a Christian, 
Are you aware that you have already, whatever age you are, been showered with uncountable graces and kindnesses by the one who is called God of gods? And are you aware that you deserve none of it? (laughs) And if you are saved, are you aware that this Lord, the Lord, little caps, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this God has set an unbreakable promise-based love on you such that he will go to bat for you against all the strongest powers in heaven and earth and carry you all the way to paradise just as Gavin prayed, give you more than you could ever ask or think, that this Lord has also died for you and risen from the dead for you and so that you can rise too so there's an unbreakable hope and that you also deserve none of it? Will you give thanks? 26 times back to back without losing steam. (laughs) If not, why? There isn't anything in this psalm or in the gospel, or in the Apostles' Creed, or any, anything that's canceled out or nullified by anything that you could experience in this life. God is who he is. That's not changing. He's done what he's done. That's not changing. He's promised what he's promised. He will fulfill. His steadfast love endures forever. Your circumstances, your feelings, your experience of this life can't change that. Therefore, in all circumstances, Psalm 136 is for you to sing and to say out loud to people, to your own soul, to God. Today, every day, we have an unshakable grounds to give thanks for his steadfast love endures forever. So that raises the question. This is point two. What does that mean? What is steadfast love? I'm, I'm in the ESV, that's how they, they state it. Depending on what translation you're using, you might be reading His Mercy Endures Forever. I think that's the King James flavor if you're in the NASB or something else. His loving kindness endures forever. Um, what are they getting at? Why, why, are these weird, why do you invent the word loving kindness, for example? Well, when translators use the word unfailing love, steadfast love, whatever, something like that, they're trying to grab your attention and draw attention to the fact that this concept has a lot of theological weight in the scriptures, at least when it talks about God. It's probably, if you know three Hebrew words, it's probably hallelujah, hosanna, and uh, you want me to say it, it's got the H thing in there, chesed, it's that love word, right? Pop into any Bible dictionary, it's going to be a huge long entry there. That's such an amazing word, right? Well, you'll read about the core feature of the word is it's love, it's mercy, it's kindness. Yeah, but the idea is relational loyalty. It's an affection, yeah. Kindness, mercy, definitely. It's both those things, but in the context of a relationship based on promise, based on God's steadfast love. But we don't, dictionaries, they're whatever, uh, enough about them. We read the text. Every single line of the text helps define what the word means. <laughs> it's the context. It's usually better anyway. 
So God creating, that's steadfast love. God feeding all flesh, that's steadfast love. God saving his saints, God's steadfast love. And shockingly to us, God killing the firstborn of Egypt. Steadfast love. So we let scripture, not dictionaries necessarily, not our feelings, culture, celebrity preachers, or even your favorite New Testament verses alone at least define what God's love is like. All of scripture, every verse of this psalm, this psalm is just a brutal case study on God's steadfast love. So when you go through it, I think you find that God's steadfast love or mercy, loving kindness, covenant love, loyalty, whatever, has two main expressions. The first, God's faithful love in creating and then upholding and sustaining everyone and everything. Food, he's got the sun and moon in their courses, right? And then the second category is God's faithful love in saving and protecting not everyone, but his chosen people specifically. On one hand, his common grace, theological term, giving everything existence and form and purpose and life and food and breath and everything. And on the other hand, his saving grace, setting a special covenantal love upon a person or people, blessing them, and notably in this psalm, making their enemies his enemies too. So those two categories are our last two points for the day. So point three is verses four to nine and also 25. Again, the pyramid shape of the psalm. Um, I'll just read the unique lines, leave out the steadfast love piece just to make it easier to track. Um, Starting in verse three. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. Steadfast love endures forever to him who alone does great wonders, to him who by understanding made the heavens, to him who spread out the earth above the waters, to him who made the great lights, the sun to rule over the day, the moon and stars to rule over the night, for his steadfast love endures forever. And then verse 25, thanks to him who gives food to all flesh, for his steadfast love endures forever. So this point, this section, here is a word to all flesh, everyone here, regardless of your status before the Lord. If you are listening today and do not yet believe in the God of the Bible and trust Jesus for salvation, this word applies to you just as much as it does to anyone else here. Give thanks to him who alone does wonders. Only this God Yahweh, Lord of lords, God of gods, only this God works mighty wonders. Give thanks to him. So what are some of those mighty wonders? You might ask, verse five. It was his wisdom and understanding that he consulted, if you will, when he created the heavens. Sun, moon, stars, angels, his own throne room, everything that you see when you look up and everything that you don't when you look up, metaphorically speaking. His idea, his design, he didn't ask anybody's opinion. 
He didn't consult any textbook or manual or some sort of eternal mathematical form. It's his wisdom. He asked nobody but his wisdom. Let the Trinitarian reader understand. His love and his wisdom endures forever. Verse 6. It was he who spread out the earth above the waters. Whatever grand theories you might have as to how he did that, how the lands came to be, you are accountable to recognize the fact, which is as plain as day, he did it. If you are not currently, and no one is doing this that I can see, if you're not currently drowning in a watery abyss, You need to give thanks to him who is at this moment giving you land to sit on. His love endures forever. Verse 7, he made the great lights and he gave them jobs, a purpose. Again, his wisdom, his idea, his plan. He's doing something with these lights. He made the sun to rule over the day and everything that entails, life and warmth, clarity and sight, growth, food, crops, seasons, your weekly and yearly calendar. He made the moon and the stars to rule over the night and everything that entails. Again, light, smaller, but different. Rest, sleep, reset, your monthly calendar, or theirs at least. We fiddled with some stuff. Navigation, stars, tides, affects everything. So if you right now have any sense of time, if you're counting the minutes of this sermon, if there are any rhythms of life that we so desperately depend on, growing food, resting, sight itself, God has established and sustained that in his wisdom in his creation of the heavens. He alone works great wonders and his love endures forever. And then, capped on the other end of the psalm, verse 25, he gives food to all flesh. Yes, we farm and we shop. Yes, lions hunt and birds peck. But God hunts for the lion and he feeds all flesh. He says to Job, who is it that hunts food for the lion? Implied, me. So God is gracious in giving rain and food and life and breath and heartbeats to every living creature, even those that rebel against him and even those who do not recognize him as their creator and sustainer. As you sit, you are burning calories that God fed you, whether you thanked him for it or not. But you should. And that's the point of the psalm. Give thanks to him who gives food to all flesh for his love endures forever. And now point four, the big one. Verses 10 to 24. To him who remembers and rescues. So here we move away from speaking of what God does for everything, everyone, regardless, whether they thank him, regardless whether they're saved, And now we're in the section of God's steadfast covenantal love and loyalty to his people, to his church. And we see immediately, (laughs) verse 10, that this distinction matters 
a lot. God loves the world generally in one way, in a number of ways. But that benevolence has its limits. God loves his specific people in another way, a, a way that is radically faithful and that will challenge our default ideas of what we mean when we say things like, God is love. So verse 9, moon and stars rule over the night. Lord, Lord's steadfast love endures forever. And then without even a sentence break, I mean, we're in the same sentence here. That same Lord's love endures forever in what way in verse 10? He, quote, struck down the firstborn of Egypt. He killed all of the firstborn sons of anyone who did not faithfully obey his very specific commands to kill the Passover lamb in a certain way and eat it in a certain way and spread its blood on the door in a certain way. For the reason for this, the grounds, the foundation for the killing of the firstborn of Egypt is that the Lord's steadfast love endures forever. He drowned Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea. His love endures forever. He killed kings and took their land. His love endures forever. How is that love, you might ask? Oh, it is. Or if you're reading other translations, how is that mercy or loving kindness? Killing kings, armies, firstborns, love, mercy, kindness. What is going on here? The answer is that the psalmist is describing God's acts of salvation and rescue. That God has chosen a people for himself to save and sustain and assure with promises God has sworn to bless them, come hell or high water, the Red Sea specifically. Everything described here is how this people is saved. It is the good news for Israel. His best and richest and fullest love is reserved for his saints. And that always, always means judgment for those who hate him and do violence to them and would prevent them from seeking the Lord. This is not new to us. The highest and best love is always relational and exclusive and jealous and protective against all foes. It says this one, not that one. The good, not the evil. It's true in marriage, one spouse to the exclusion of others. It's true for parents, your kids over anybody else's. It's true of members of a local church, our members committed to one another before any other Christians and all sorts of other social relationships, all the more so with God's covenant people. So when God adopts a people or you individually as his son or daughter, and promises you an incredible inheritance, he relates to you differently than those he did not. And the difference is loving, merciful, covenant loyalty. Those who curse you, I will curse, he said to Abraham, and those who bless you, I will bless. So verse 10 describes the climax of this, of the 10 plagues that finally convinced Pharaoh to let God's people go out of slavery. Verse 11 proceeds to credit God with bringing them out of their home. Verse 12 explains that God did so with great effort and might so that all the nations can see that the God is Lord. 
All the nations will fear this Lord, Moses says. Verse 13 and 14 recounts how God did the impossible and made these deep and deadly, just horrible waters. Without a boat, water is, I mean, even with a boat, who likes water, the deep water at least. He split the waters apart so that the people he loved could pass through that watery grave without so much a scratch so that they could finally be free. And verse 15 remembers that God's love was only for his people, that Egypt's people were washed away in those same waters, the abyssal grave. And verse 16 briefly recalls 40 years of hard desert wandering where Israel was tested and taught to trust the Lord. And then finally, 17 to 20 remembers how mighty kings, the last line of defense of the promised land, they're in the way. They tried to use lethal force to keep Israel out, to keep them out of their home. Sion and Og Og were kings of nations right on that border. Sion, the king of the Amorites, they tried to say, hey, we're just going to pass through. We're not going to bother you. You don't bother us. Um, But he responded with treachery and war, attacked. God handed them the victory, and they devoted everything to destruction. Similar thing with Og, except no deception. He just came out of nowhere, king of Bashan. He's this giant man, a descendant of the Rephaim that Abraham fought with uh, back in chapter 15 of Genesis. And he attacked him. God handed them the victory again. They devoted everything to destruction. He had 60 walled, fortified cities, countless other villages, and they kept it all. In verses 21 and 22, Specifically, the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh traded their claim beyond the Jordan River for the land that they had just captured from these kings. The only thing left was for them to cross over into their promised land. They had been successfully delivered out of slavery, passed passed through the wilderness. Here it is. This is their foundational event. This is their good news. This is their sort of constitutional movement. those powerful enemy forces, no match. God's promises would come through against all opposition. Great evil empires like Egypt, no match. All of Egypt's gods, no match. Deadly seas, utterly in God's control. Treachery of Sion, nothing doesn't matter. The strength of a terrifying giant with a huge army to match, leveled to the ground. That, the psalmist says, is love. When done in faithfulness to his covenant. Well, that's them, Moses' generation. Now look at verses 23 to 24. Now we're in the Psalms era, David or someone, maybe even post-exile. It is he, verse 23, who remembered us. First person. Our people right now in our lowest state. For his steadfast love endures forever and rescued us from our foes. For his steadfast love endures forever remembered us, rescued us. That was true of whoever the psalmist was, and it's true of us, too. This is our story. As children of Abraham, as brothers and sisters of Jesus, the Exodus is church history. But we can add a lot more great wonders than is contained in this psalm. God's done a lot since then, hasn't he? It's been new and better foundational event 
a new and better salvation and rescue, a new and better protection from God and sustenance, a new and better inheritance, better than the physical land of Canaan. In fact, almost every one of these verses has a fulfillment in Christ. Let's walk through it. Verse 10, the killing of the firstborn. This is in the weeds, but remember the firstborn were required and the way that Israel could escape the losing of their firstborn was to use a lamb as a substitute. Now we know that the blood of goats and lambs is not enough to cover sin. It's not equivalent to a firstborn son. But there would come a day when God himself would provide a firstborn as a sacrifice and that his judgment would pass over us in the exact same way. This Passover lamb was Jesus Christ. As he himself said during the last or the first Lord's Supper in the Gospel of John and the other Gospels too. This sacrifice broke us free from slavery, not to Egypt, but from slavery to death itself. His love endures forever. Verses 13 and 14, passing through deadly waters. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 that Israel passing through the Red Sea was a type, a foreshadow of baptism. He writes in Romans 6 that by faith Christians are united with Christ in his death and his resurrection through baptism. So we too pass through the waters symbolically and emerge officially free from death and with a new identity, a new national identity with Christ, a new familial identity in Christ. So for us to remember the works of God here, we look not only back to our own conversion and baptism, but also to the death and resurrection of Christ, his baptism into death and raising into life. His love endures forever. Verse 15, killing the pursuers. Hebrews 2 says that through death, Jesus destroyed the one who has the power of death, namely the devil, and I would add all of his minions, and delivered all those who through fear of death, this is still a quoting, all the, delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's Egypt language again. Exodus language again. When Jesus broke Satan's power over his people, he delivered us from slavery just like when he broke Pharaoh's power and delivered them from slavery. His love endures forever, we say with the Israelites. Verse 16, leading through the wilderness. Hebrews, Peter, all sorts of New Testament authors often speak of our experience as analogous to their wilderness experience. It's a long way from home. It's a time of testing. It's time to trust the Lord. It's time to look forward to the promised rest and the promised land. A time for war against the powers of darkness while time is left and souls are dying. His love endures forever. There's a fulfillment in this too. Verse 17 and 20, he killed great kings. Well, what do we do with that? In all ages, there have been and will be till Christ returns mighty rulers who would stand in the way of God's people seeking to deceive them like Sihon, destroy them like Og, or derail them on their journey like Moab and Balaam and all of his cursing or attempts at cursing. We have ser- the serpent and his seed in Genesis 3. We have Cain killing Abel. We have the builders of the Tower of Babel, the army of the Rephaim who kidnapped Abraham's nephew, Esau versus Jacob, Pharaoh, Sion, Og, the Canaanites, Goliath, 
another giant. Assyria, Babylon, Greece, Rome, Jerusalem. Time would fail to tell the rest of church history, which would supply us with this constant stream of enemies, powerful earthly enemies, spiritual enemies even, of the church and of God. Big and small, more to come. And so as the king, so his subjects. God is the one who delivered them through Sion and Og, and so also Christ delivers us through these enemies as well. Moses led the people in battle. David led the people in battle against Goliath and the Philistines, and Jesus leads his people in battle against the giants, if you will, of our day. There is nothing to fear. His love endures forever. Our captain is better than David, better than Moses. He is God. In verse 22 and 21, or 21 and 22, God gave all that the kings claimed for themselves, all that they built to his people as a heritage. When Jesus rose, he proclaimed that all authority in heaven and earth was given to him. Now the great kings and great giants and seeds of the serpent in our day will make grand pontifications and claims about what they own and what they get to decide and what you get to do and not do. But Christ has made his counterclaim, and Christ will prevail. The inheritance of the saints is nothing less than the inheritance of the Son. We are co-heirs with Christ, the apostle says. And the Son has overcome the world. Therefore, take heart. His love endures forever. We could go on forever describing in more detail what each person of the Trinity did to save us and is doing to preserve us. Give thanks to the Father for loving and choosing and sending, the, the Son for taking on flesh and, and shaming the authorities in his ministry and dying and rising and, and the Spirit for rebirthing and empowering and uniting and preserving his church. So as Christians living so many years later, we could add entire just reams of verses to this psalm. It wouldn't be inspired or authoritative, but it would be worth it. <laughs> we could fill, you could just plug in the Apostles' Creed if we want, add 18 or more new lines where we get to say, his love endures forever, further proved through more time, more time, more time, only more love, only more loyalty, only more wondrous, mighty works. How often... He remembers us in our low estate, how often he rescues us from our enemies, big, small, personal, corporate. So what God did and currently is doing in saving us ought to be our song, and may we never tire of it. To conclude, I, I, I do want to visit one example of God's mighty wonders in the post-New Testament church history. Uh, Athanasius, however you want to pronounce him. He was a bishop in the 300s who's most well-known for his long and hard and pivotal and sometimes lonely defense of the true doctrine of the Trinity and the deity of Christ. He's one of the great men in church history that we have to thank for something we normally take for granted, the doctrine that Jesus is God and man. How much of a blessing is it that we basically just get to assume that? <laughs> And we're not constantly disciplining and fighting about these things. Well, he was. 
He was heavily persecuted throughout his ministry, exiled, I think, five times in his life. This story comes from his defense of the right of Christians to flee persecution sometimes rather than you know, face it head on and just get arrested and executed and that kind of a thing. This will be his third exile. Um, so this week, uh, however, over 1,500 years ago, 356 A.D., February 8th, that was Thursday this week. It would have been Saturday or Sunday back then. Soldiers from the heretical emperor, he denied Christ's deity, were coming to do God knows what to Athanasius and his church. This is what he wrote in defense of what happened that night. Quote, It was now night, and some of the people were keeping a vigil, preparing for the communion on the morrow. When the general... Syrianus suddenly came upon us with more than 5,000 soldiers, having arms and drawn swords, bows, javelins, and clubs, as I've related above. He surrounded the church, stationing his soldiers near at hand in order that no one might be able to leave the church and get past. Now, and he's debating with himself, like, what do we do in this situation? Now, I considered that it would be unreasonable for me to desert the people during such a disturbance and not to endanger myself in their behalf. Therefore, I sat down upon my throne or chair and bade the deacon to read a psalm and the people to answer. Guess which psalm? For his mercy endures forever. And then he bade them all to withdraw and depart home. End quote. So they're trying to get out, but as they're doing so, they're singing, reading, proclaiming, answering with the whole congregation. Psalm 136. <laughs> the, the, the Lord is good. His love endures forever. To the God of gods, his love endures forever. Psalm was read. The congregation responded. The soldiers closed in from all around And then Athanasius reports that once most of the congregants somehow escaped and the ones that were left were on their way out, the monks and other clergy dragged him away to preach another day and keep fighting the good fight of the faith. Such that not only did most of the church escape, but he and the other church leaders did too. Just let that sink in. Here is God's steadfast love on display to take care of his people against the schemes of God's enemies. At the same time, that this refrain, his steadfast love endures forever, is echoing throughout the sanctuary. God was in that moment exercising his steadfast love for the preservation of the church, the preservation of the truth, and the saving of the lives of those who defended it. Athanasius and his, his church were able to continue to fight for true doctrine. And through their work, God has preserved the integrity of the church when it was looking really bad, at least down in Egypt at the time. Now, we do know from other sources that the situation ended up being pretty bloody over the course of the week or evening. But the immediate escape from the church seems to have been more miraculous than chaos. But even so, these are Christians we're talking about. Christians have been united with Christ in his death and resurrection. The wondrous works of God does not merely include an earthly translation into another place. It's been translation from death to life. Therefore, 
even when the pharaohs and the scions, the ogs and the Satan of this world kill us, God's love still endures forever because by his grace we also endure forever with him. There's nothing in all creation, Paul says, that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He is Lord of lords. He is God of gods, God of heaven. No mere creature nor any powerful group of creatures, nations, a tower of Babel situation, anything, nothing can ever get in the way of this loyal covenantal love which has been sealed with the blood of his own precious son. So, Christians, no matter what pains or griefs you may endure, you have infinitely more to be thankful for even right now. Because the pain and the griefs will only last a little while, but his love endures forever. So give thanks. Give thanks, not just generally, but to our Lord who works wonders and who remembers us in our low estate. His eye is on you. Who rescues us from our foes. Give thanks to the God of heaven. His love endures forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would loosen our spirits and our tongues to gaze upon the mighty works that you have done, which would take the whole day to even summarize. Were we to list them, the, there wouldn't be enough paper in the world or enough ink. So we pray that even in the face of darkness and death and suffering, that this song would be ready and available to us. That we could say, without wearing out, without tiring or losing steam, his steadfast love endures forever. 26 times. And forever. That we know that in a little while you will come or we will die and that there will be no difficulty whatsoever to sing that song for eternity. So Lord, we pray that you would give grace now while we are in this wandering wilderness with enemies on all sides, that we would be, that we would be good, that we would be comfortable, that we would be able to um, sing this without reservation. When we know you are with us in Christ, not for anything in us, but because of your love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.